Good morning. All right, today's scripture comes from Romans chapter 15, verse 14 through 21. Okay. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished <clears throat> excuse me, through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will, un will understand. This is God's word. So we are rounding the, the bend here in this, uh, this study of Romans that we've been in, this series in Romans. And uh, Paul is beginning here in this section, he's beginning kind of starting to, to, to land the plane. He's getting ready to, to close out this long letter that he's written to the church in Rome. And uh, as he does so, he's, he's spent the first 11 or so chapters of this letter. Remember, just, I mean, you guys know, but just remember that the, the chapter divisions weren't from Paul. So think about it as one long letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And he spends what we call the first 11 or so chapters laying out how the gospel changes everything. And he, and he does so by laying out at the beginning what the problem is. And that is in chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Paul says, this is the problem that we have, all of humanity, for although they, that is human beings, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the state of every single person who has ever lived. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's saying that the, the heart problem, the main problem with every single human being, with humanity at large, is that we have exchanged the glory of God, which we're made for, for made things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He says that the, the sin problems, the individual sin problems that all of us have are based upon the fact that we have exchanged the glory of God for created things and have worshiped things other than God, which is what we were made to do. We were made to worship God. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But this is where God comes in. He says in verse one and two of Romans five, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through him, through Jesus Christ, we have obtained, those of us who had exchanged the glory of God for a lie and had worshiped things other than him and therefore who were given over to all kinds of debased, sinful things, it says, through him, we who have obtained uh, salvation by grace through faith, been justified by faith alone through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And because of that, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then he spends the last, he says that that's how the gospel begins to change everything in our lives and everything in creation. And then he spends the last five or so chapters kind of laying out like, this is how this changes everything. This is how the gospel changes everything, and he's applying it particularly to the situation in Rome where the the church there is dealing with this deep division that has uh, erupted between the Jews, those who are of Jewish background, Christians who have Jewish background, and the Christians who have a Gentile background who see life and the the way that you live for God very, very differently. And Paul applies the gospel, how that our worship has been changed from futile things to worship the one and only true God who has granted us salvation, not by any merit of our own, only by his grace that we access only by faith or resting in or accepting what he has done on our behalf. What Paul is showing us is that that gospel that changes us at our very core begins to change our lives and that begins to change the lives of a people together. He creates, God creates in our midst through the gospel, a new society a new culture, a new way of thinking about ourselves and a new way about thinking about each other. Jesus is creating a new society through his church that's fueled by a different kind of worship. And that worship, these, among the other things that he says of how that applies to us, he says that worship should, should create us in such a, a mindset in us that we present our bodies and lives as living sacrifices to God, which is, he says, our only reasonable response, our only reasonable worship. The only thing that makes sense to God, if we have been saved by grace through faith, those of us who had been given over to a debased mind and were worshiping created things other than the creator, who have been brought near to God by grace through faith, the only reasonable response is to present all of our lives as worship to God. And he says that should look like this. It says that we should love each other with brotherly affection, that we should outdo one another in showing honor. That's what the gospel should begin to do and should be doing in our hearts and in our churches is that it should be creating such a deep brotherly love in our midst that we, that it looks like, and we are actually trying to outdo one another in showing honor and love to each other. He says, this is what it should look like. It says that we as Christians shouldn't repay evil for evil. That when wrong is done for us, we shouldn't be seeking to do wrong back in return to try to even the score because we don't want an even score because Christ has given us grace when we deserve something very different. And he says, not only don't return evil for evil, he says, but return good back for that evil. Overcome evil, he says, not with other evil, not with greater evil, but overcome evil with good. He says for us to submit to our governing authorities. He says that we should owe, we should view ourselves as owing love to one another. Owe nothing to each other except to love them. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. He says, don't pass judgment on others who have differing opinions. This is the kind of community, the kind of new society that the gospel should be creating in our midst. 
of people who don't divide or pass judgment over people who have different opinions over us, over things that are not central. Now, there are things that are central, the gospel. There are things that are central about Jesus Christ and about God that scripture very clearly lays out, but there are any number of opinions that we have about how we live out a life and how we worship and how we view politics and how we view economics that he says that we should not be passing judgment on each other because we differ opinions. We have differing opinions. He says, don't, not only that, but don't cause your brother or sister to stumble if they don't share your convictions. Find a way to hold your convictions in such a way that it doesn't hold, that it doesn't cause your brother or sister around you to, st to stumble. And then he kind of caps it off and he says, live, in, here's what it should look like. He said, I want you to live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another in such a way that you glorify or worship God with one voice. And now as Paul begins to close the letter, he's gonna share with us, he's gonna share with the Roman church why he is going out of his way to write them. Which is an interesting thing because Paul did not plant the church in Rome. Paul had probably never met almost all or, or certainly most of the people in the church in Rome. He had authority over it because he was given by God the grace to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he had not planted that church. He had no direct relationship with that church. He steps out on a limb in order to write them this letter, lay out the gospel, say, and this is how it should be, you should be applying the gospel to this division that you have going on in your church. And he says, I've used some strong words with you guys. And why would Paul risk his reputation and go out on a limb with a church that, that he didn't plant with people that he didn't have a personal relationship with that they could very well read this letter and just like some people hear you know, a sermon and say, I don't like that, I don't like that guy, I'm out of here. And he wants them, you would think he should, he should try to ingratiate himself to them because he, what he wants to happen is he wants to travel through Rome and he wants them to help him, give him supplies and resources in order to, to get to Spain to preach the gospel. So you'd think he would be trying to butter them up the whole time instead of going out on a limb to try to address a very tender, a very, a very explosive division that is within the church of Rome. Why would Paul do that? Why would he go out on a limb? And he shares why in this passage. Paul tells us that the gospel of Jesus has changed his ambition in life. That Jesus, worship and joyful submission to Jesus has changed Paul's ambition in life. And, and while there are some things in this passage that are particular to Paul, like none of us in this room are called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. None of, these, none of the people in this room are called to be an apostle who has that kind of authority, right? But there are certain things in this passage, I think this passage should be like a, a ruler, it should be like, a, you know what a ruler is? It's a guide and it's a measuring stick. A ruler guides your measurement so you know that you're, like, you're, you're on the right track and it's a measuring stick to show you if you are doing things the right way. What this passage shows us is it shows us how someone thinks when their heart and mind is truly captured by Jesus. The first thing it shows us is the gospel changes who we live for, or rather, who we live to. Look at verses 14 through 16. 
I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and are able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the, by the Holy Spirit. Paul says he's taking a risk in writing to the Roman church. He's risking his reputation. He's risking how they're gonna perceive him and they're gonna approach him because he says, he's kind of lays out, first of all, he doesn't live for himself. Paul no longer at this point lives for himself. He lives for God, for God's or Christ's greater mission. He says, on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. As in the priestly service of the gospel of God. He describes himself in the wording as a priest. And, and the things that mark a priest is, first of all, a priest is consecrated to God. A priest is someone whose life doesn't belong to themselves anymore. A priest is someone that God has set aside for his service. You're not going to live for yourself anymore. The, the, the Levites and the priests in the Old Testament, they didn't own land because God wanted them to physically be set apart from the other people. Your lives are, my, are dedicated to me. Their lives revolved around the temple, not around their own land that they were tilling and caring for. They didn't pass down land to their children, which was the great pride in the ancient world to be able to pass down your land and your possessions to the generations after you. Their inheritance was the temple, was caring for and ministering to God on behalf of the people, but set apart to God for his work. And Paul says, that's the kind of role that I am in. I'm a, a priest that is consecrated and set apart to God. And so therefore, I'm writing to you some bold or strong words because my life is not my own. I'm not here to care for my reputation with you and make sure that you think good of me. I'm here on God's service. I am consecrated to set apart to his work. I'm a servant of the Lord. My life is not my own. And my job, my role in that place is to minister to people in God's name, not my own. It's to build God's kingdom and not my own. And Paul tells us, not in this passage, but elsewhere, he tells us that all believers are called to this lifestyle. This is not simply the role of an apostle. All believers are called to this lifestyle. You can even feel it in the way that he's writing to the believers in Rome, that he's expecting that they will, even though they aren't apostles, they will identify with this sense of mission, this sense of consecration. Paul said in Romans 12, I appeal to you there, we just covered this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, set apart, consecrated, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable worship. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, because you, for you were bought with a price. That's the blood of Jesus Christ, by the way. So glorify God in your body. He says, in, and Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal 
priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of us, every single believer, all of our lives should be and are, whether we want to admit it or not, because we've been bought with a price, should be and are dedicated alone to God, just like a priest was dedicated or consecrated to God. You and I are not our own. Our bodies, our lives belong to our master, to our king, Jesus Christ. And that's whether we acknowledge it or not as believers. He paid the price. He completed the purchase. Whether I want to go through life and act like it or not, my life belongs to him. And therefore, just as Paul was dedicated, I, my life should be dedicated to serving the Lord and his people. Not to building my own kingdom. Not building my own name. Not building my own comfort. Not building my own reputation. My life, the overarching ambition or drive behind my life should be to serve the Lord and his people. And look at the wording that Paul used there to present. He wanted to present uh, the, the Gentiles. He was sent as the apostle to the Gentiles and he wanted to present the Gentiles as an offering to God to be acceptable. Our life should be not only serving the Lord and his people, but should be actively trying to present the people around us Present God to the people around us and then present the people that we see saved and brought into the kingdom back to the Lord as our offering or our praise or our reasonable service back to him. But just like Paul, if we do so, it's gonna cost us in comfort and it's gonna cost us in our relationships. Paul lived a far less comfortable life than he could have if he had not been saved by grace through faith. We read in other passages, he was shipwrecked and beaten and stoned and cast aside and considered the scum of the earth. But he said, I count it all as rubbish or as dung for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It will cost us if we follow Christ. It will cost us if we dedicate our lives to him instead of our own kingdom and our own comfort and our own security. But we are not our own. And there's a prize. It's not a, it's not a call for us as believers to a life of gritting your teeth service to God. Jesus described it like this. He says, the kingdom of God is like, uh, is like a, a man who finds a pearl of great price. And he goes and he sells everything he has in order to buy that pearl of great price. Does it cost everything he has? He sells his lands, his home, his car, his most precious possessions. It costs him everything he has. But he does so gladly because there's a greater treasure on the other side. There's a greater hope that pulls us and draws us as believers. We should be people who are seeing and savoring the, the glory of God that leads us in worship to give him everything. And that worship should lead to witness and then that witness should turn around and lead to worship again as people see the glory, us 
exalting in and enjoying the glory of God and living for him gladly in glad submission, in joyful submission to him. They should see that and say, what is this about? And we tell them the gospel that we have heard and received and they see it and they see the glory of God and they begin, they come into the kingdom and they begin to worship and it just goes on from there. Our worship should lead to witness and that witness should be leading to worship. Paul says the gospel shows us how the gospel changes who we live for or who we live to. And then Paul shows us that the gospel changes how we accomplish the things that we do in life. Look at verses 17 through 19. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Hear that wording. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul says boldly, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? That's not something I hear us saying very often to each other. I have reason to be proud of my work for God. How could he say that? How could he say he could be proud of his work for God? I, I think we need to think about how we tend to think about things that we accomplish or things that we want to accomplish. We tend to think highly of ourselves whenever we're able to produce well. That's what our whole economy and whole culture around us really celebrates. It's the water that we swim in so much that we don't even recognize it as water, like a fish that swims in water doesn't recognize it. The culture around us is, is based on this sense of meritocracy. That, that, that is that, that your value, your worth is directly tied to your ability to produce. And if you can produce in whatever field that you happen to be in, if you can produce, then you're gonna get more money and more security and you're, you're gonna increase in value as a person as a, to yourself and to the people around you. And so, man, we, whenever we're able to produce whatever, whatever that is and whatever field that may be, then we feel really good, right? It might be able to, I produce it, my work in such a way that they, they, I am rewarded by monetary benefits. Or maybe I'm able to produce in my field in such a way that, that I'm able to, to rise the, up the ladder and people see me as successful. Or maybe as a mother or a dad, I'm able to have these kids, they are clothed the right way, they behave the right way, and everybody around me just celebrates me and all, how, what a great mother or dad that I am. It might be schoolwork. We, we tend to think very highly of ourselves when we're able to produce. And we feel very proud about that. But the opposite is true as well. And that is when we are unable to produce, whenever we have, whenever we come face to face with our inability, with our smallness, when we come face to face with those things, we tend to think lowly of ourselves. And just as high as 
I feel about myself one day because I look around and say, man, that was really good. Look what I did. A week or two later, I look around and say, look how I failed. And I'm super low. We need to think about how do we think about the things that we accomplish or the things that we want to accomplish in life. Paul, how does he describe the things that he accomplishes? How does Paul describe what he wants to accomplish in his life? Why could he say, I am proud of my work for God? Because he says this. He says that God worked, that God worked through him with power. Paul was at work. He had to sacrifice. He had to get on those ships. He had to go plant the gospel. He had to preach the gospel in places in the face of mobs who didn't want to hear. He had to go into, into places where people did not want to see, hear him. He had to be kicked out. He was stoned. He was beaten. But he says, this is what empowered me through it all. It wasn't because I am a great, strong man. He says, God worked through me with power. And that's why I can say, that's why Paul could say, I am proud of the work that God has done through me. I'm proud of my work because God worked through me with power. And what did that power do? All right? What, what, what did God give Paul the power to do? How did God work through him? Did God give him power in order to in order to, to build a, a huge ministry that was multi-million dollars and had millions of dollars coming through and huge podcast ministry and is on TV and everybody's like buying his books and, and coming to see him at conferences. Is that what God worked to do? What does he say that God worked through him in power to do? He says to bring the Gentiles to obedience. He says, God worked through me with power in order to bring those who are far away from him to himself. That's what the power of God does. The, the power of man, my power, I have some communicative abilities. And I, I may be able to stand in front of a group of people and convince some people of certain things. But I have no ability to change a heart I have no ability to really change someone's truly, their, the core of their mind. I have no ability to bring somebody from death to life. But Paul says, God worked through me to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. To change hearts and minds, to bring the death to life. That's what it's like when God works through us by his power. The death are brought, the dead are brought to life. Hearts and minds are changed. People who are hard and seemingly, and you couldn't be any further away from, from the gospel, any further away from God, like Paul. Here's what made Paul such a hard case. He knew so much about the Bible that he had every single defense lined up of why Jesus was not the Messiah. He was hard set against Christ and his people. 
And yet God came in an instant and by his power changed his heart and mind, brought him from death to life, and he saw God do the same thing through him to the people around him. That's what the power of God does. That's what the power of God working through people does. He says, I did so by word and deed. He says, I proclaimed the gospel and it came forth with power. And then he says, not only that, but by deed, I demonstrated the gospel and that came through with power as well. We as believers should be proclaiming the gospel, but we should also be demonstrating the gospel in power. Our words should have an effect on the people around us and our actions should have an effect on people around us. There are stories of Christians. There's just one story of this guy who, who walked on a train and looked at somebody on the train, just looked at him. And the guy started breaking down crying and he got to share the gospel and bring him to Christ there. That's the power of God. By word and by deed. He says, by the power of signs and wonders. These are things that God does that no one can explain. Powerful things that happen through the lives of believers as we trust the Lord and live on mission and pray. Ways that he shows up, that he, they're called signs because they point to someone greater than us. I know you didn't do that. Therefore, I want to know more. There, there are some of us in this room I've had conversations with. He says, you know, I don't know about this whole miracle thing. I don't know about signs and wonders, but I went on a mission trip and things happened that I can't explain. Signs that happen that point to the truth of who God is and cause the people around us who do not yet know him to wonder. And cause us as believers to wonder. When you read the book of Acts, it talks about this sense of awe that was among the people of God because God was in his, their midst and they knew it. They felt it, but they also kept seeing it around them. He says, by the power of the Spirit of God. What that means is that we aren't here working on our own. We're not called to go and work for God. Go be faithful for God. Go proclaim the gospel. Go do the deal. Go be, have integrity in your business dealings. Go do all these things, and, and I'll see you when I come back. That's not what Christ did. He said, I am with you always to the end of the earth. He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and among us as believers by the power of the Spirit of God. We aren't supposed to be out here working on our own, but God himself, hear this, God himself should be at work among and in his people. The power of God, Paul says, revealed the presence of the Spirit of God, and that's what we're after. And so therefore, Paul said, I have reason to be proud. Not because people say, oh, that Paul guy, he's great, isn't he? I mean, I don't know how good a preacher Paul was, but I just know like one night he was preaching and somebody fell asleep and fell out the window. So he might not have been a dynamic preacher. In fact, he seems to be, when he's writing to the churches he's been at, he always seems to be apologizing about his presence. I'm sorry I embarrassed you when I was in your midst. But yet, I have reason to be proud because not because of my power, but because of the power of God that works through me. 
and shows that he is real and he is in our midst. And that should tell us that our ministry should be powerful. Our ministry should be powerful. Nothing has changed since the day of the apostles in, in terms of he's given us his gospel and told us to go and he is with us and in us and among us. The word and power is the way that God has shown to the world around us that he is real. God's, not only that, but God's presence and his power made Paul's ministry fruitful. He says, I have traveled across the Mediterranean from Jerusalem to Illyricum and look at what has happened because God has worked mightily through me. Yes, it's hard, but our ministry should be fruitful. It shouldn't just be powerful, but our ministry should be fruitful. So what do we do when we look at our lives and we look at a ministry that we're part of or a church that we're a part of and we, we see, hey, my life and our church isn't particularly powerful or particularly fruitful. What do we do? Well, that might be a good place to start just to, have, to say that out loud. My life isn't particularly powerful or fruitful. Our church's life isn't particularly powerful or fruitful. And if we can accept that, if you can accept that as a person, if we can accept that as a church, then what do we do then with that? Do we just accept that as normal? Like, God must have left us here just to do this. Let's be faithful and just hang on. Let's make it through this Sunday and make it through next Sunday. And one day he's coming again. Do we, make, do we accept it as normal? To accept a, a lack of fruit and power in our lives? None of us here are the Apostle Paul. But we are believers, sons and daughters of the King. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. We've been united to Christ through his sacrifice on our behalf. And he has called us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Do we accept it as normal? Or then do we go and rush to make plans as if it, if it is up to our power? Well, here's what we need. What if we preach less? What if we preached more? What if we had more classes or better small groups? That must be the answer. What if we had a building? What if we didn't have a building? What if it was all online? Maybe that would be the answer. None of those things are the answer. It's not up to our plans. Paul said, it's as God worked through me. What do we do? Well, I'll tell you what we do. We follow the pattern of scripture and the saints that have gone before us and we call out to God. We plead with him. Come move in power, make us fruitful. Let us echo the words of Paul. We repent. We see areas in our lives, in our ministry, that we rely upon ourselves and are living for other things other than the Lord. We see ourselves as the king or boss of our own life. And then we don't give up in prayer. And we seek, continue to seek God to move for his glory and on our behalf. Because lastly and quickly, Paul shows us how the gospel changes our personal ambitions. 
Paul says in verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul was able to get to a point in his life where he's able to say, I fulfilled the ministry or task that God has, had given him. He had, God had given Paul a particular role, a particular ministry to fill that matched his gifts and his time. And we won't, won't have the same, again, the same mission as Paul did or the same, maybe the same, even, same, same kind of clarity as Paul did. But Paul assumes in this passage and elsewhere that we will share in his ambition that God be glorified through the sharing of the gospel. And here's the truth that each and every single one of us, each and every single one of us have been given certain gifts and motivations to fulfill God's mission in their, in each of our particular place and our particular time. He tells us in that in chapter 12 when he talks about all the different members are, have been given gifts in order to, to serve the Lord together. This was a, a very personal mission for Paul. It was his personal great ambition. It flavors all of his letters, it flavors all of his preaching, and it flavors all of his life's choices. And so I think a question that we have to ask then is, where do each of us, where do our gifts and talents and motivations and our particular time and place that we live, how do they combine in you joining in God's mission? You have a particular personal mission that God has given you to fulfill in your particular day, in your particular time, in your particular place. And the ambition of every believer should be to use their gifts and their time for the glory of God. What do we really want to see happen in our lives and how do we really want to see that happen? Do we really want to see comfort and security or do we really want to see God's kingdom come, God's will be done in this moment, in this place, in this time, using me and all of my particular motivations and all my particular weaknesses and all my particular gifts for his glory and the, people, and the nation's joy? And how do we want to see that happen? To see, hey, that Randy, he's such a great preacher. That dude, that lady, they're so awesome. Or do we want to see a holy ambition that says, oh, God, I want to see you move through me for your glory in such a way that only you get the honor and the praise. Other people have other roles. Paul says, I plant, Apollos waters, somebody else does this work, God gives the increase. Other people have other roles, but you and I are responsible for our particular role in our particular place, in our particular time. Here, this is we end. That is not dependent upon your spouse or your lack of spouse. It is not dependent upon your schooling or your lack of schooling. It is not dependent upon your season of life. It's not dependent upon your church or your leaders or your personal mental state. God has given you 
gifts and talents in your particular time, as weak and small as that may be, and we need to make our personal ambition and Doxa's great ambition to say, God, use us here and now for your glory and the nation's joy. This passage ends with this great promise from Isaiah 52, verse 15. It's a promise that God gave in the Old Testament, but Paul took it as a challenge, and I think it could be a good challenge for us, and maybe a refreshing challenge this morning. Verse 21. But as it is written, those who, never, who have never been told of him, that's God, will see, and those who have never heard him will understand. That should be that should stir our souls as believers. God, make my life as such as marked by your power so that those around me who have never been told of you and those who have never heard will see and will understand. Let's make that our great ambition personally, our great ambition as a church. I'm getting ready to pray and we're gonna celebrate communion together. Here's where it starts. An ambition, this type of overriding ambition with our life begins by seeing all that Christ has done for me. I see God's holiness and I see my sinfulness and I see Jesus Christ showing up in grace and love and forgiveness on the cross for me. And that causes me, stirs my heart with worship back to him. So this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, as you come forward, there'll be a station on either side. As you take that cup with the wafer on top and the juice in the bottom, let that remind you this morning and let that be a moment of communion between you and your master to say, God, you have done this for me. God, stir my heart and my soul so that this becomes my personal ambition and that others can be in here one day and I see them partaking of communion because they've been brought from death to life as well. Uh, as you come forward to communion, if you'd like someone to pray with you, I'd be up here, I'd be glad, happy to pray with you. Tad, one of our elders back in the back in the prayer area, it would be his honor to be able to pray with you. For, it could be something that we talked about this morning or anything else going on in your life. Please avail yourself of that moment. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna open up both sides. If you're a believer in Christ, it's open for you to come this morning as the band leads us in worship. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. Father, we have accepted not only lesser glories, but we have given ourselves to lesser ambitions, uh, to comfort and security, to the honor of people around us, to our reputation. Father, I pray that you'd make us individually and make us a church, a people of one great ambition, that you'd be glorified and that we would be able to say, as we look back as Paul did, I'm proud of the work I've done for God because of his great power that did it through me. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.